All right, good morning. Great to be back with you guys again as we wrap up this series called Mindfeld. Didn't the band do a great job? Give them a round of applause. Let me also highlight one other group. I like to, you know, periodically just celebrate people who are serving, groups of people who make what we do here possible. Um, how about our tech team? Give them a round of applause. So... I worked as, in tech team at just about every church I've been in, and I can tell you, the only time anybody looks back there is when there's feedback or when the words don't match. But I'll tell you what, if it weren't for them, you wouldn't be able to hear me right now. Because you're used to Pastor Doug, and Pastor Doug is about like 10 levels above me. And so they were actually telling me, hey, you need to speak up, you need to speak up, shout to the back of the room like Pastor Doug does. That's not me, but I'll give it my best shot. So here we are, and Pastor Doug, a couple of weeks ago, he's not here, by the way, and, and let me just say, by the way, if you're visiting today, I want to encourage you to come back next week when Pastor Doug is here. If you have not heard him preach, Pastor Doug is a great preacher. He is faithful, and I don't think I could say any better higher praise than the fact that he preaches verse by verse through the Word. So I want to encourage you to come back next week. But Pastor Doug, a couple of weeks ago, came to me and he said, hey, Ken, I'm going to be out on this week. Do you think you could preach? And I said, okay. I said, well, what are you going to be doing? And he said, well, we're going to be in this series, Minefield, and you're going to be wrapping it up. And he said, do you have any thoughts? So he kind of gave me the parameters of what we were in. And I said, well, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is really this war that the world and culture is waging against the mind. And he said, that's a great idea. He's like, do you have a text? I said, well, you know, just off the top of my head, I would say Romans chapter 12. I mean, that's really the passage that I think about when it comes to conforming to the world versus transforming in your mind. And Pastor Doug said, great, that's good, go with it. And so here we are in Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 this morning. Now, in order to introduce this subject, what I want to do is I want to kind of do a little bit of an experiment. So I'm going to need your help with this experiment, okay? This is audience participation. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some famous movie quotes, and I want you to finish these movie quotes, okay? Pretty easy. I'll give you a, I'll give you a softball for the first one. May the force be... There you go, Star Wars. If, by the way, if you don't know the, that line and you haven't seen Star Wars, come meet me afterward. I'll introduce you to Star Wars. All right, here's another one. Show me the money from Jerry Maguire. There you go. I see... Dead people from the sixth sense. A lot of people got that. Some people didn't, okay? You can't handle the truth. truth. By the way, I've never seen that movie. A few good men. I, I, you know, I know the quote backward and forward, but I've never actually seen that movie. All right, here's another one. E.T. phone. Oh. By the way, I hate E.T. I hate that movie. <laughs> if you like that movie, there's something wrong with you. I, that little alien, a little alien voice, I just, I can't do it. And uh, I hate it when I was a kid, still hate it now. So I apologize if you, if you do like that one. How about this one? Martini shaken, not from James Bond. There you go. And, and I'll give you a Christmas one since we're getting close to holidays and you've all decorated your houses already. Every time a bell rings, an angel from It's a Wonderful Life. So here's the point, because you're probably wondering, okay, what's the point of this illustration? Here's the point, okay? Every one of those phrases I gave you right there contains unbiblical elements. Every single one of them. And yet almost every one of us here can quote those word for word. See, whether we're aware of it or not, the world is influencing our minds. Now, listen, you may not believe those statements, 
But the world is trying to get you to feel something when you see those statements or when you hear them. For example, when you hear, you know, Cuba Gooding Jr. shouting, show me the money, it creates a sense of excitement in you. Or when you see E.T. in that little E.T. alien voice saying, E.T., phone home, you start to feel sympathetic or compassionate. When, you know, you see James Bond stroll up in his suit that's perfectly cut to the bar and he says, martini shaken, not stirred, you think, okay, that's cool or that's suave or that's sophisticated. See, the world is trying to get you to feel something so that it can influence how you think. And this is a good reminder of what Pastor Doug said to us last week when he said that what comes in you will affect what comes out of you. So as we get into the book of Romans today, I want to kind of set the stage for you here because what we are doing is we're jumping almost middle of the road, kind of actually a little bit toward, toward the latter part of the book of Romans. So I want to kind of set the stage so you understand what's going on so that we know what Paul is trying to communicate. So what's happening here is the Apostle Paul is writing this book, this book of Romans, which is really a letter, and he's writing it to some churches that he had never actually been to. Paul had always wanted to go see these churches in Rome, but he had never had the opportunity. And so the Apostle Paul writes them, and even though he had never been to these churches, he knew exactly what struggles they were going through. See, the Roman world at that time was the center of idolatry and immorality. And Roman culture was at war with Jesus Christ, with Christians, and with the gospel. And so when Paul writes to these Christians, he's basically telling them about how to live righteously in the midst of all of this persecution and suffering that they're experiencing. In other words, what he's saying is he's trying to help them understand how to live right in a world that has gone wrong. And when we get to chapter 12, what the Apostle Paul does is he kind of shifts away from a lot of the teachings on, on doctrine and on salvation, and he kind of shifts into an approach of how to deal with culture. And this approach is going to actually carry him through the rest of the book of Romans. But specifically, what he wants us to understand in chapter 12 is he begins this discussion on culture war and how the world is attacking the mind. And I would submit to you that there's no more relevant subject for us today in this particular country. See, whether we're aware of it or not, American culture is at war with Christians and with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's no different today than it was 2,000 years ago. The world is at war with you, and it's at war with me. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. The title of this message is World War Me. And what I want to do is I want to show you what the Apostle Paul has to say to us about how we can win this war that the world is waging against us. But before I get into the passage, what I want to do is I want to introduce you to one main point that you're going to see throughout this message, one main point you're going to see through this text, and I'll come back to this in just a bit, okay? So here it is. The reason that the world attacks us mentally, and it'll be up on the screen, is so that it can alter us spiritually. The reason, let me say that one more time, the reason the world attacks us mentally is so that it can alter us spiritually. See, the mind is the gateway to the soul. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me, if you will, and we're going to, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, then I'll pray, and once we're done praying, then we'll get in this message. And here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, 
that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Father, we come to you today in the name of Jesus. We ask God that you would give us wisdom as we study this text, that you would give us direction and discernment as we live our lives. Father, that you would help us to be weary of the attacks that the world is waging against us and the war that they're trying to wage against our minds. And God, that you would help us to, as Paul said, to renew our minds and be steadfast as lights in the midst of darkness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you to see you seated. So what I want to do today is I want to show you three principles that Paul gives us to help us understand how to win World War Me. Three things he's going to say to us that will help us understand how to win the war that the world is waging against us. And the first of these is this, okay? If we are going to win this war, we have got to have the right spiritual priority. We must have the right spiritual priority. If you're taking notes, you can jot that down. So when we look at verse 1, what Paul does is right off the bat, he says, I appeal to you. Now, anytime he uses this phrase, it's usually carrying the weight of his apostolic authority. So the apostle Paul is basically saying to us, look, okay, hey, keep in mind that I'm apostle. Keep in mind that God has sent me. He's commissioned me to give you this information. And so basically what he's saying is, I want you to pay attention because this is something that's absolutely vital for you to understand. And his appeal here is based upon the mercies of God. That is to say, God's love and his grace. So what Paul is saying is, look, if you've been changed by the mercies of God, if you've been transformed by the love and grace of God, then you need to pay attention to what I'm about to say. And here's what he's about to say. He says it here. He says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, that word present is very interesting in the Greek. It's, done, it's something that's done in the past that has an effect that kind of lingers into the present, but it's also something that we continually do in the present. He uses an infinitive here, like running or jumping. And so he's saying we need to continue to keep presenting our bodies. Now, the word bodies there, by the way, is not meant to be just, okay, Paul's not saying, hey, take your flesh and put it God. Give it to God. That's not what he's saying. Okay? What he's talking about here is the totality of all that we are. So he's saying we need to be giving all that we are back over to Jesus Christ. And what he does here is he draws into this picture an Old Testament illustration. And this illustration is this. It's the sacrificial system. And so what you would have is you would have an altar that would be out in front of the people in the temple. And the altar, they would take the animals and they would put them up on the altar and they would slay the animal and the blood would come out and that would represent the death of the animal. And so this is what Paul is kind of invoking as, as it pertains to imagery. Now, here's where this differs a little bit from the Old Testament analogy. The Apostle Paul says that we are living sacrifices. In other words, we're not like the animals. The animals, when they were slain, they died, and that was it. But we, when we present ourselves sacrificially in this way, continue to keep living. And this twist also represents the biggest problem that the Apostle Paul sees. See, what happens is the altar represents the place of closest connection to God. And the reason that the Apostle Paul sees a problem here is because you and I stay alive after we sacrifice ourselves to God, after we give ourselves over to God, we stay alive, 
But what happens is we crawl off that altar and away from the place of closest connection to God. We move away from the spot where we are closely connected. And so what the Apostle Paul says here is that, listen, we have to be willing to keep putting ourselves back up on the altar, or better, keep putting ourselves into the place of closest connection to God. And Paul tells us why we must do it here. He says in verse 1, he says, this is your spiritual worship. Now, I must admit that the ESV translates this rather, rather poorly here. The Greek word here is logikin, which is where we get our English word logical from. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying is that, look, if you've been transformed by the grace of God, if you've been transformed by the love of God, then the logical outcome of that should be that you constantly keep giving yourself back over to Jesus Christ, that you constantly keep putting yourself into the place of closest connection to him. And he said, well, why is that so important? Well, here's the reason why. If you and I don't constantly keep putting ourselves back up on the altar, constantly keep putting ourselves back in the closest place of connection with Jesus Christ, then we cannot win the war that Paul is about to tell us about in verse 2. We cannot win this culture war if Jesus, Jesus isn't our main priority. So in verse 2, what he says is that, listen, he's telling us here that we can and must only have one spiritual priority. Jesus said it himself, right? He said, you can't have two masters. You'll love the one and hate the other, but you can't have both. The youth, we, I was with the youth on Tuesday night. We talked about this in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. John says it this way. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so what John presents and what Jesus presents and what Paul presents is this dichotomy. It's either the world or it's God, but you can't have both. And we have got to have the right spiritual priority if we are going to win this war that the world is waging upon us. Jesus Christ must be first in our lives. And so here Paul tells us that we have to have the right spiritual priority, but he gives us a second thing. We have to have the right cultural proximity. We have to have the right relationship with the culture and the world around us. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world. Now, the word conformed here means to pattern or shape after the same fashion. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying, look, he said, you shouldn't look like the world. Now, what's interesting here is the way that this Greek word is used. The, the Greek word is actually passive when you look at the, the Greek text. And so what Paul is not saying is he's not saying, hey, guys, don't go out and conform yourself to the world. That's said in other texts. But what Paul is saying right here is don't allow yourself to be conformed by the world. One commentator put it this way. He said, stop allowing yourself to be conformed. That's a really good translation. Stop allowing yourself to be transformed. Now, of course, the biggest question is this, okay? If this is something that the world is doing to us, then how do we stop ourselves from allowing the world to conform us? Well, I'm going to give you three ways right now that the world is trying to conform you and trying to conform me. Three ways that I think will help us understand the attempts that they're making. The first is that they want us to have a common identity. A common identity. You can be whatever you want to be, do whatever you want to do, as long as it doesn't line up with the Bible. That is the only identity they don't want because it breaks the common identity that the world wants you to have. You can choose your own God or no God. You can choose your own gender or no gender. 
You can choose your own apparel or next to no apparel, as is common today. You can choose your own sexual preference or no sexual preference, but you cannot choose Jesus Christ. That's the one thing the world doesn't want you to choose. And if you don't think that the world is trying to influence you and influence your children to this, then you might already be under the influence. I read an article just the other day on Fox News of a kindergarten teacher who took her kindergarten class to an LGBTQ bar on a field trip. And she spoke glowingly to reporters about her opportunity to, to get these children to experience this culture and to experience this lifestyle. Listen, be whatever you want to be, do whatever you want to do, as long as you do not choose Jesus Christ. That's the one thing the world views as intolerant and the one unpardonable sin to the world. So we have a common identity that they want us to have, but there's also a common ideology. And I will say that this ideology that they want, to have, want us to have is political in nature. See, what the world wants us to do is it wants us to do the opposite of what Dave Ramsey tells us to do, which is that we shouldn't go out and spend money we don't have to impress people we don't like. And see, but they want us to do that. The world wants us to do that so that we will sink ourselves into financial debt, and then guess where we will go for help? We'll go to the government. And we'll say, hey, can you bail me out? See, this common ideology that they want us to have is one where we view the government as our only source of hope in this life. But I want to be very clear about something right here and right now. The government has never been and never will be the source of hope for people. The only source of hope for mankind is Jesus Christ. So there's a common identity, there's a common ideology, but third, there's a common immorality. And, and the cry that they have is, you know, everybody is doing it. Why don't you join us? Everybody is doing it. Be like us. And nowhere is this more prevalent than in the world of entertainment. It's all over the world of entertainment. They'll try to convince you that watching nudity and sexuality on TV isn't a sin, even though the Bible says that it is. They'll try to convince you that you know, pursuing the world's treasures isn't bad, even though the Bible says that it is. They'll try to convince you that supporting candidates that oppose biblical morality isn't wrong, even though the Bible says that it is. Listen, they want you keeping up with the Kardashians so you aren't keeping up with the king. What they want to do is they want to create a fake reality that lures us in by commonality so that we are slowly taken away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me quote Malcolm Muggeridge for you. He's a famous journalist from the 1900s, a British journalist. And it's a bit of a lengthy quote, so let me quote it, and then I'll kind of explain the quote a bit. He said this. He said, to suppose that life really could be lived, followed about everywhere by a camera, I decided represented the ultimate fantasy, not just of television, but of life itself. Furthermore, it goes without saying that the allegedly real life of the family in question as presented on the screen, was calculated to devalue the whole concept of family life in Christian terms. He's saying two things there. Number one, he's saying there's no, no such thing as reality TV because everybody acts different on camera than they do in real life. But the second thing that he's saying is that all of entertainment, the goal of entertainment, the whole of entertainment is driven toward devaluing biblical morality for devaluing the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
See, the world's entertainment is trying to deceive you, and I will tell you, it is very, very subtle. It's kind of like the two men I heard about who were involved in a, a massive car accident. Both of their cars were completely totaled. The first man managed to crawl out of the window that was left in his car, what was left of it anyway, and the man was a rabbi, and he ran over to the other car and uh, noticed that the other man was crawling out of his car in the same fashion, and it was a priest. And the rabbi marveled at the, what had happened, and he said, wow, this is really amazing. He said, you know, here we are, you know, both of our cars are completely totaled, neither one of us is hurt, I think God wants us to be friends. The priest said, you know what, you're right. He said, this is obviously a miracle, our cars are smashed to pieces and we're not hurt, God must want us to be friends. So each of them was taking a minute or two to kind of look over the damage in their car, and the rabbi noticed something in the back seat of his car. There was a, a bottle of wine that was completely undamaged. And so the rabbi grabbed the bottle, ran over the priest, and said, look at this, here's another miracle. This bottle of wine is completely undamaged. I think that God wants you and I to share this together in celebration of our new friendship. The priest agreed, and he said, that's a great idea. So he took the bottle, uncorked it, drank half of it, and handed it over to the rabbi. Well, the rabbi took the bottle, put the cork on it, and set it aside. The priest said, wait a minute, I'm confused. I, I thought we were going to drink together in celebration of our new friendship. Aren't you going to drink? And the rabbi said, oh, yes, absolutely. He said, I'm just going to wait till after the police report. <laughs> the world is trying to deceive you in the same way. It's a very, very subtle approach. Adrian Rogers used to say this. He said, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. You know what? That's true. But that's even more true of the world. The world will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And you say, okay, well, you've spoken a lot about what the problem is, but how do we stop this? Well, Paul tells us in verse 2, doesn't he? He says, okay, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Don't allow yourself to be conformed, but here's how you fix this. He said, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That word transformed is, is where we get our English word metamorphosis from. So in other words, he's saying something changes into something else. So for example, a cocoon becomes a butterfly. A tadpole becomes a frog. A person becomes a power ranger, right? For those of you in the 90s, that's how it worked. They were morphing. Some of you get that later. But. Be, the renewal of your mind. Now, here's the thing, okay? What does the renewal of your mind mean? This is what it means. It means to be controlled by and consumed by the Word of God. So if we are controlled by and consumed by the Word of God, then we can avoid being con conformed to the image and the pattern of this world. And once this happens, Paul says, then we will be able to discern or really better prove what the will of God is. It's very interesting. Anytime I, I go over a phrase that says, this is the will of God, I'll inevitably get a question from somebody, and it'll be like, hey, what's the will of God for my life? You know, I, I really just want to know, what's the will of God for my life? Well, I'm going to tell you what the will of God is for your life right here and right now. You ready for this? Here it is. The renewal of your mind. That is the will of God right here in this verse. In fact, if, did you know that if you took every statement about the will of God, you could put them into two categories? Every statement in the New Testament that says this is the will of God, you could put it into two categories. Number one is salvation, and number two is sanctification. In other words, God wants you to be saved, and he wants you to be sanctified. 
Every other decision that you have to make is simply a matter of prayer and personal conviction. The will of God right here for you is to be conformed to the word, not conformed to the world. And so Paul presents here this contrast that he's drawing us into of what it looks like to be controlled by the world and what it looks like to be controlled by Jesus Christ. Allow me to quote Malcolm Muggeridge one more time as he provides a great illustration of this contrast. Okay, here's what he says. Never forget that only dead fish swim with the stream. See, what Paul is telling us is that true Christians understand the danger of swimming with the stream of the world. True Christians are going the opposite direction. So Paul's told us we have to have the right spiritual priority. He's told us that we have to have the right cultural proximity. But there's a third thing he says in verse 3, and that's this. He also wants us to have the right mental proclivity. The right mental proclivity. And he said, well, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean. I chose that word proclivity for a reason, because this represents what Paul is saying in the text. What Paul is talking about is a natural inclination that he wants us to help conform our minds to, to train our minds to. A proclivity is just a natural inclination. And what Paul wants our natural inclination to be is first upon the word, not upon the world. And so in verse 3, he's going to tell us what the keys are to training our minds in this fashion. Notice what he says there. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone. Now, when he uses this phrase, I say to everyone, this is usually a warning. So anytime Paul says, I say to everyone, this is something that he's warning you about. And he's basically saying, look, if you don't do this, there's going to be some dire consequences. So it's similar to what he's saying earlier where he's saying pay attention, but now he's saying pay attention because if you don't do this, the consequences are going to be grave. And here's what he says. I say to everyone not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now I want to step aside from the English for just a second because something is going on here in the Greek that you can't see, okay? And I want to explain what's going on in the Greek because Paul is trying to get our attention and also make a point at the same time. The word think there is actually used four times in this verse. You'll only see it two times in the English, but it's used four times in this particular verse. So what Paul says is this. He uses the Greek word, which is phreneo, for think, okay? He says, I want you to think, with phreneo, with, not with above think, which is really just the words above and think combined, so it's uper phreneo in the Greek. So he's saying, don't think with above think, but rather think, same word again, phreneo, with below think, or right think, or sober think. So he's using this kind of witty little wordplay in the Greek to draw on our attention and make a point. And here's the point. He doesn't want us thinking with above think, which is arrogance or pride, but rather thinking with below think or right think, which is sober-mindedness and good judgment or humility. And this reminds us of what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, right? He said, if anyone thinks he stands, let him take heed that he doesn't fall. And so Paul's telling us here that, listen, if we're going to win World War Me, one of the most essential components is humility. We have to be humble enough to understand that we cannot win this war in our own power and that we could potentially fall at any time so that we can keep our focus upon the Word of God. We've got to have the right mental proclivity, and we've got to train our minds so that they are fixed upon Christ. 
And again, just as he did in verse 2, he's going to tell us how we can do this. This is what he says. He says, each of us should do this according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In other words, the way that we can do this is by relying on Christ's power, relying upon his grace and his intelligence. We can only succeed by lining ourselves up with what he says is true. And if we don't have the right mental focus, I'm going to tell you, it's really easy to get lost in the fog that the world is trying to enshroud us in. Reminds me of a man who began ministry back in 1980 at the age of 37. This man, uh, within just a few years, was speaking all over the country and all over the world. His entire calendar was filled up with speaking engagements. In 1984, he began a ministry that would go on to have a presence in over 20 different countries. This ministry reached out to millions upon millions of people. In fact, they were receiving tens of millions of dollars in donations every single year and had hundreds of people on staff. Throughout his ministry, he wrote and authored 25 different books to help Christians engage the world and defend their faith. But along the line, something happened. Several years before the end of his life, he began to be tempted by the world. And rather than renewing his mind, he allowed it to be conformed to the world. Shortly after his death several months ago, an investigation was launched into his ministry and his personal life. And this investigation, within a few months, found a number of troubling allegations. They found over 200 selfies sent to him by women who were not his wife. They found any number of sexual abuse accusations that had been covered up by he and by his his ministry. And they found that he had been taking mission trips under the guise of mission trips to engage in activities with women in different countries. The man that I'm talking about is Ravi Zacharias. It's a name that many of you have heard. It's a name that many of you have probably been through his studies or seen him preach. He lost World War Me. He went from distinguished among his peers to disgraced before the world. You say, well, why did he lose? Here's the reason why. Because he let the world get a foothold in his mind. And I want to tell you that you and I can just as easily fall prey to that if we aren't actively guarding against this. I told you before at the very beginning, I'd come back to that main point I wanted you to see. The reason the world attacks us mentally is so that it can alter us spiritually. If you and I want to win this war, the way that we have to do it is we have to be humble enough to admit that we can fall. We have to make Jesus Christ the most important thing in our lives. And we also have to remember that while we live in this world and while we strive to reach this world, We must never be like the world. That is what the Apostle Paul is telling us is how we win World War Me. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes for just a minute? I want to provide some next steps and some application that comes from this and just in the form of some simple questions. The first question I ask you is, are you sacrificing yourself daily? 
We all fall off that altar. We all crawl off that altar, that place of close connection with God. Are you putting yourself back up on the altar every day and doing everything you can to put yourself into a close connection with Jesus? If not, what do you need to do to do that? The next question is, are you too close to the world? You know, are we letting the world control our thoughts, control our minds, control our time, control our treasures? Are we letting the world take the place of God in our lives? And if we are, what do we need to do to make it so that Christ is more important than the world? What do we need to do to distance ourselves from the world? The third question is this, is are you setting yourself up for a fall? Or are you daily humbling yourself before God and asking him to give you strength and to stand in his power rather than our own? Have, have, we, have we come to the conclusion that the world is our friend or do we understand rightly what scripture says that the world has always been and will always be our enemy? And that our responsibility isn't to be like the world but is rather to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But maybe there are some of you here today and there's a different question you need to answer, which is, who's God in your life? Is it Jesus Christ or is it the world? And maybe you're here today and you say, it's the world or I don't know. But I want to know today who's in control of my life. And I don't want it to be the things of this world that are temporal. I want it to be Jesus Christ who controls eternity and all of creation. If you're here today and you would say that, then there are going to be some people on the sides when we get done here in just a minute. And I'm going to, you'll see Pat and Willie on one side and you'll see Jason on the other. I just want to invite you to go up and take the hands of one of these people and say, listen, I know I've made mistakes in my life. And today I want to be right with God. Today I want to turn my life over to him. And rather than being controlled by the world, I want to be in love with and pursuing Jesus Christ. So just a moment, you'll have that opportunity. Others of you here, maybe you're, you're struggling with something. The altar is open for you if you want to come and pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had together. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to study to show ourselves approved as workmen who don't need to be ashamed but accurately handle the word of truth. God, we thank you that you have provided us a means of escape from the world that is trying to seduce us every single day. And God, we thank you that you never leave us and you never forsake us and that one day you will right all of the wrongs that are in this world and one day you will take us to yourself to a kingdom that cannot be shaken, to a kingdom that cannot be destroyed and to a kingdom that is flawless and perfect. And we wait for that day in anticipation. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.